The uh, thought I have uh, to share with you is uh, much like uh, the baby from the baby naming this morning, that small things come in beautiful packages, hopefully the same for this morning. When I, um, when I was a child, and I know that this repeated itself also when I became a parent, but when I was a child, one of the things that they routinely did, I can't compete with Joshua. <laughs> Uh, when I was a child, one of the things that was a tradition to do, and depending on the grade, it was grade seven, it was grade eight, it depended, but that they would take us to Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., we would take a tour and go look at the building of the Congress. We would look at the Treasury. We would go to places like that. And then we were told, often people would ask, well, what did they do in the buildings of the Congress. And they would say there that what they did there is that they, they engaged in politics. And then we would say, well, what is politics? And they would say, well, politics is the creation of power. And then we would go to the Treasury and we would say, well, what do they make there? And they would go, well, they print money. And you would ask yourself, so what's the point of printing money? And they would say, well, you print money to create wealth. And the scene replayed also replayed itself in my life because I took my kids to Ottawa and we went by the parliament building and I would say to them, well, that's where they do politics. And they would say to me, what's politics? And I would say, well, politics is how people make power. And then we would go by the treasury also. And I said the same thing, that the treasury is about making wealth. And then on the way through Ottawa, we stopped off at the synagogue because a friend of mine was working there. And I asked them, we went to the parliament, we went to the treasury, and you saw what they made there. What do you think they make in these buildings? By and large, the world that we live in, and when I say by and large, I mean by and large, the world that we live in is dominated by those two principal ideas, the creation of power and the creation of wealth that overwhelmingly what we see in the world is that all of the debates between the left and the right are ultimately questions about the division of wealth and power. Now, on the side of the more liberal spectrum of the political world, most people feel that power, meaning the government, is the best way to control and run the world. In other words, through the collective, that we as a nation, as a society, give power to the government to make laws, and that as a collective, that that's the best way to run the world. But the market works in the exact opposite. The market works, the creation of wealth works in a way about individuals. The market is not about the collective. The market is about what each individual can or can't do, the good decisions they make and the bad decisions they make. And the clash between the collective and the individual is played out day in and day out in our life. That the battle between wealth and power goes on and on and on. But as I indicated to you earlier, there is in fact a third way that human beings have come to understood and can understand their life. There is no question that over the past hundred or so years, that it has been muted and dominated by wealth and power, but unquestionably there is another way. 
there is another way that humans have organized their lives. And the way that humans can understand their lives even to this day, and maybe particularly even more so today, is a way of understanding our lives not through a zero-sum game. The zero-sum game of the world works like this. And you also see this in the headlines. That when someone has money, and money is taken from them by taxes, or if they give money away, if they have a dollar and they give 50 cents away, they are only left with 50 cents. In the world of power, of political power, when political power is taken away from someone in power, for example, we have things called checks and balances, divisions of powers, laws are made and then it goes to a court and the court says it's not legal and it takes power away from a government. When power is taken away from you, you have less power than you had before. That's what a zero-sum game is. I win, you lose. You lose, I win. But as I said to you, there's another way, a third way, beautifully described by the late Rabbi Harold Schulweis. Schulweis was a, uh, a refugee, a survivor from the Shoah, who's made his way to the west coast of the United States and a very long and successful and prosperous career. He passed away about seven years ago. And he tells the following story. He went into a Hebrew school to talk to little children. And he said to them as follows. He said, what does it mean when I say that love is everywhere? Where do you find it? So he sends one of the kids into the closet. Of course, love's not in the closet. He tells to the kids, he searches in his pockets. It's not in his pocket. He opens up his wallet, love's not in his wallet. Tells him to look in their desks, love's not in his desks. So he says, you know, we all say that love is everywhere, but you can't find it. And the idea behind this is, is that when you love someone, when you care for other people, when you give of yourself, Love is not something material that is diminished when I give it to other people. But the power of love is such that the more I give it, the more I have of it. The kinder I am, it doesn't mean that I am less kind at the end of the day. In fact, I feel inspired to be kinder. The more giving I am, the more generous of feeling I have, the more grateful of spirit I have, inspires me to be more grateful and more kind and more giving. In other words, unlike wealth and power, which are zero-sum games, if I have a dollar and I give 50 cents, I only have 50 cents left. The better part about ourselves are not diminished when we give and take of them. They actually become stronger. Years ago, I remember reading the story, and I suspect you all know it too, because it's been a prominent element of a number of uh, museum displays. There was a man who lived in the Warsaw Ghetto during, uh, during the Shoah, during the Holocaust. His name was Emanuel Ringelblum. Ringelblum operated a newspaper and cultural circle inside the walls of the ghetto during the war. And not only did he engage in setting up schools to educate children, and everyone knew 
where the people of the ghetto were being sent to. And yet they educated their children. They taught them to play music and to learn how to play chess. They put on plays. They had cultural circles and book readings. They published a newspaper. And Ringel Bloom, after doing all that during the day with other people, would retire back to the hovel of a hole of an apartment that he shared with his family. And on the back of scraps of paper, recorded everything that happened during that day. And when the time came when he knew that his end was drawing nearer, that he would be removed and taken out of the ghetto and transported, he took all those scraps of paper and he stuffed them into milk cans, two of them, and buried them into the ground. In 1950, when they were repairing and rebuilding parts of Warsaw, they found two milk cans. Today, if you look on the internet, they're known as the milk cans. They're also known as Ringelblum's archives. And one of the last piece of papers that he wrote in the archive was, I have to write this all down so that it won't be forgotten. Which is an echo of what Gratz, the historian, wrote before he was transported out of the Warsaw Ghetto. From the trains he cried out, he said, Jews, write this all down so that it is not forgotten. What was Ringelblum actually doing? While there were certainly people during the war who were busying themselves in making money, in hoarding food, in trying to protect themselves and gaining power, none of them are actually remembered. On a Shabbat morning, their names aren't being mentioned. But this man who quietly, and he believed anonymously, was writing things down out of love for his people and his future, not only are they not his words and thoughts are not limited to what he wrote. But the legend of them has grown far beyond what he wrote. It is unquestionable that the world we live in is a world of power and wealth. I admit that. The power tells us what to do. The wealth tells us what to buy. I get that too but it doesn't mean that every corner of your life has to be directed and controlled by those things either. In this morning's Torah portion, we read of the following, of a beautiful ceremony, that when the Israelites enter into the promised land, that a farmer who is drawing the first fruits of his trees, planted within the Holy Land, that he was not allowed to take them for himself, but that he would put them in a basket and he would go to the temple in Jerusalem, and he would hand them to the priest. And there, the very best and first of his fruits would be handed over in charity, in the spirit of God. And a, an elaborate prayer and blessing would be recited that would be concluded with this. Hashkifa mima'on kotshecha, hu yivarechet amacha et Yisrael. May the one who is abodes on above the Most High, may he bless his people, the people of Israel. 
the parliaments and the Congress, they create power. And the markets and the banks make wealth. So what do places like this do? What are churches and synagogues and mosques, what do they do? They make better people. They make the kind of things that can't be taken from you. They make the kind of things that aren't diminished by inflation or by time or by weather. In short, they echo the words of the great American author, William James, who said that there are only three rules to living a good life, and they are, be kind, be kind, and be kind. Shabbat shalom.